All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I also like to remind you I'm also the, uh, the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling. And you can uh, contact, learn more about all three of those newsletters by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. Another website I'd like to remind you uh, to go to is jtaylormedia, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-media.com. There you can access this radio show as well as all those newsletters and all kinds of other things that I uh, do from time to time. We do want to thank our sponsors uh, for making this show economically viable. And for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. We also want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel uh, by uh, a large degree. We want to thank you very much for your support and loyalty to this show. Before we get started with this week's show, I would like to say a word about one of last week's guests, namely Bill Bergman. He's a courageous former Chicago Fed economist who raised some serious questions about why M1 rose so dramatically in the weeks leading up to 9-11. He raised some very good questions, but apparently there is something out there that the public is not supposed to know about. Mr. Bergman lost his very nice job at the Fed for asking those questions, well, I admire people like Bill who put truth ahead of their own selfish interest. It's a dangerous thing to do personally sometimes, but unless more people step forward, we most certainly will lose all the freedoms and liberties that we have had and enjoyed in America for so long. You know, President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex taking over our country, and he also noted that great nations self-destruct from within. In case you have not noticed, that seems to be what's happening in America now. And the military-industrial complex, along with the Federal Reserve banking system that funds those military efforts most certainly, in my view, uh, are, is at the heart of our move from what was once a very free country to one that is looking more and more like a Soviet-style dictatorship. In any event, getting back to Bill Bergman, I failed to pass along last week information that would allow you to follow his work on an ongoing basis. You can contact Bill at bill at socialmovementsciences.com. Dot com. That's socialmovementsciences.com, bill at socialmovementsciences.com. And you can learn more about what he is doing 
uh, at uh, the uh, www.thefundforfreedom.org, thefundforfreedom.org. For sure, Bill is a man of strong character who is searching for objective truth, but we have had many people on this show, many guests. Uh, We've been honored to have many of them on this show that are like that as well. And today we are introducing another person who I have the highest admiration for. I'm talking about Alana Mercer. She's the author of a book, uh, an excellent book, called Into the Cannibal's Pot, Lessons for America from Post-Apartheid South Africa. Well, as Dmitry Orlov said on this show in the past, the propaganda machinery of the Western world, especially the United States, is so unbelievably effective in shaping the belief systems and demand of the demands of the voting public uh, and really shaping truth, uh, the truth as it's perceived, uh, that really has a lot to do with the direction of our country. So the manipulation of the mindset of the American people is what Dmitry talked about said that our propaganda machine was so far superior to anything that he saw in the Soviet Union. So it is that Americans have patted ourselves on the back uh, a few decades back, a couple of three decades back, for doing our part to push South Africa into giving up their apartheid policies. Any of our business? Well, you know, we thought that we were doing a good thing uh, by making, uh, forcing and putting pressure on South Africa to get rid of their apartheid system. But what is South Africa like now, not only for white people, but for everyone since the Western world forced that change on the South African government, really forcing them to become a communist, collectivist society that really looked more like the Soviet Union uh, than anything else? What has socialism and the forfeiture of private property in South Africa meant, not only for the cause of liberty and property, uh, but for human safety itself? And we'll ask Alana Mercer to talk about that issue when she comes uh, on this show at about 3.30 New York time. In the second hour of today's show, a mainstream economist who does understand the virtues of private property and how that is linked to our personal happiness and safety and freedom, he'll be joining me. And I'm talking about Gene Epstein, who writes, uh, a, writes the Economic Beat column for the Weekly Barron's publication. Gene has uh, coined a new phrase to describe the perverted breed of capitalism that we have in America now. He calls it crapitalism. That's C-R-A-P-I-T-A-L-I-S-M, crapitalism. We will ask Gene what he means by that word and how this pathological strand of capitalism has gotten us into so much trouble. We will also ask Gene to talk about his forecast for the U.S. economy and the markets as well. Then following Gene Epstein, Arch Crawford will be joining us once again to share his uh, insights Uh, into what uh, his study of the heavenly bodies are telling us with respect to the markets. In fact, uh, Archie put out a missive to his subscribers last week that is proving to have been spot on, at least on Monday it was. And then on Monday of this week, Arch put out another uh, alert to his subscribers suggesting that they short the equity markets. We'll ask Archie to explain why he is so negative on the markets and ask him as well for a forecast on various markets, including the dollar, gold, Uh, and the long bond market. Uh, In addition to economic theory and political philosophy, this show also tries to provide some practical ideas about how to protect your wealth and, if possible, increase it. So coming on in just a a couple of minutes will be Michel Bouchard. He is the president and CEO of Clifton Star. That's a very good-looking junior gold mining company with a multi-million-ounce gold deposit in the making in Quebec, Like most of the junior mining companies these days, the company's shares 
are really very low. In fact, they had hit a high of $8. They're selling at around $1 now. Well, I personally own Clifton Star in my IRA. It is a recommendation in my newsletter, and this company is a sponsor to this radio show, so we'll, uh, uh, we'll let you know that. So I am, of course, very much interested in hearing what Michelle has to say about this company's progress and how it stacks up in the market compared to its peers. The inevitability of a return to the gold standard. Well, that's a topic that we've talked about fairly frequently of late. A few weeks back on May 29th, Walker Todd, a former Cleveland Fed and New York Fed economist uh, and lawyer, was here to talk about what needs to be done if we go to a gold standard. Then on June 5th, Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman were on the show to talk about their vision for moving forward to a gold standard. And then on June 19th, John Butler, who has written a book about a move back to the gold standard, was on the show, and he talked about what he believes it's inevitable that it's going to happen. And his view is that in order for it to happen, we would probably have to see something uh, north of $10,000 an ounce to make uh, to secure enough gold to back the currency. The enormous amount of money that's been created out of thin air over the years would require that kind of price in his estimation. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen, uh, go back to the archives at Voice America or download those discussions on iStore to listen uh, to what these gentlemen have to say. I think there's a lot of insight there. Uh, Butler believes that we will go back, but it probably won't be on the terms of the United States. Probably it will be something that will be dictated to the United States by the creditor nations. Well, whether he's right or not, um, there are some very major issues that will need to be discussed or certainly will be very, very important when we do go back onto a gold standard. One of those issues we did discuss with Walker Todd, as well as Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman, uh, was the issue of fractional reserve banking. Now, if we go to a gold standard, how much gold should back the system? As we just said, should it be should it be 100 percent, or should there be some fractional reserve banking allowed? And uh, Bill Bergman weighed in on the fractional reserve banking subject last week, and his feeling is that well, you know, he's all for freedom. Let's allow banks to uh, to lend more money out than they take in, uh, but let's not protect them with insurance. Let's not let's not protect them by um, uh, by making the taxpayers pay uh, for the losses that banks suffer because they are taking these risks. So that's one view. But uh, Ron Paul is going to have a uh, actually a hearing next week. Uh, it's called the Fractional Reserve Banking and the Federal Reserve, the Economic Consequences of High-Powered Money. That's the name of the, uh, of the, um, uh, of the hearing that Ron Paul is going to have. Uh, and this is a very, very important uh, issue, no doubt about that. Uh, Ron said, um, just to quote his uh, what his statement um, when he announced this hearing, he said, fractional reserve banking underpins the entire banking system, yet its effects on society are completely ignored. Our financial system consists of vast amounts of credit pyramid on top of very small amounts of real savings, all backstopped by explicit and implicit government guarantees. This poses significant risks to the stability of the economy and monetary system, which ought to give pause to any serious observer of financial markets. Hopefully, this hearing will create a greater understanding among the American people about the nature of our banking system and begin the movement towards serious systematic reform. The American people deserve a financial system that is stable and efficient, one that operates without taxpayers' subsidies and bailouts. End of quote from Ron Paul. To that, of course, we say on this show, amen. Well, some of the people that will be talking, uh, that will be testifying in Congressman Paul's uh, 
uh, committee next Monday, and it will be held uh, between the hours of 2, uh, we'll start at, at 2, 2 p.m. on June 28th, uh, Dr. John Cochran, uh, he's a professor of economics uh, and dean of the School of Business, uh, Metropolitan State College of Denver. And docs, uh, Dr. Joseph Salerno is a professor of economics, Lubin School of Business at Pace University here in New York City. And Dr. Lawrence White, professor of economics, George Mason University, will be testifying. Well, it is, um, I believe, just about time to go to our first break, and so we are going to uh, take a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Michael Bouchard, or Michel Bouchard, I should say. He is a French-Canadian, so we'll call him by his proper name. Michel Bouchard, President and CEO of Clifton Star Resources. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Michel. to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor 
you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Michelle Bouchard. He's the president and CEO of Clifton Star Resources. It's a company that trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol CFO, and you can buy it in the United States, as I have, under the symbol CFMSF. 35.6 million shares outstanding, $1.08. It was the share price I saw earlier today in U.S. money, at least, and that was uh, giving it a market cap of 39 million dollars. Well, this is a stock that has been trading at a very low price, as most of them have. I mean, the whole sector has been hit very, very hard. Even though the big companies are making lots of money, more than they have in a long time, the whole junior share market has gotten knocked down quite a lot. In fact, Clifton Star had actually sold at $8 a share some time ago, and now, as I just said, it's $1.08. And that's in spite of the fact that the company has made some really good progress uh, since that high price uh, back uh, uh, back uh, a year or so, a couple of years ago. Uh, so we're really pleased to have Michelle Bouchard with us to help us understand uh, his company's progress. Welcome again, Michelle, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, good afternoon, Jay. Happy to be uh, with you again. It is really good to have you uh, with me. Now, you've only joined this company recently. When did you uh, take the helm at uh, Clifton Star? Well, I became president and CEO uh, last November, and since then, uh, some of you who have followed us have seen that uh, we did uh, quite a bit. You know, we issued uh, new uh, metallurgical uh, results, which were excellent uh, compared to uh, what uh, was historically done on that property. We got uh, 93% plus recovery on the gold, which was 10% and better uh, of anything that was before. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, our main uh, purpose was to put out uh, the, the first 3D complete resource calculation on the deposit at Duparquet. And we did that uh, three weeks ago with uh, overall it's uh, 3.4 million ounce in the indicated and inferred category. And how much, uh, what is the resource that can be mined from surface? Well, uh, the, on the open pit uh, side, we've got 2.4 million ounce in the actual uh, open pit. That's what we call a whittled pit, which is a preliminary uh, design. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's because of uh, the regulation. If you intend to mine it in, uh, from surface, you have to, uh, to do a preliminary design and report what's in the pit. Mm-hmm. And that's the 2.4 million ounce out of the 3.4. Right, what you can access from the open pit as opposed to going underground and mining, because obviously your economics change a lot when you go underground, generally speaking, don't they? Exactly. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's much lower cost uh, mining it from an open pit and uh, doing all the infrastructure to go uh, underground. Mm-hmm. It's higher cost as well. Now, you mentioned metallurgy. Uh, metallurgy, of course, is so, so important. You can have lots of ounces in the ground, but if you're in the Arctic Circle, which you're not, you're in one of the best 
uh, places in the world uh, to mine. One of the best. All the infrastructure is there. Uh, you have one of the one of the kindest uh, jurisdictions. I would say one of the most evenly balanced jurisdictions between environmental concerns and wealth creation of mining of any place in the world, and that's Quebec. Uh, and, and so those are all very positive aspects for your project. But also, uh, talk to us a little bit about the metallurgy because. Metallurgy is always so important. Uh, how you win the gold from the rock has a lot to do with not only your operating costs, but also your capital costs. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the metallurgical process that your uh, experimentation or your, your research is showing will get 93%? Yes, we've tried three different processes. And uh, mind you, uh, those deposits were, uh, were mined historically in the 50s. Uh, from uh, the underground part only, the, the top part uh, was not uh, practically touched. Mm-hmm. But at that time, uh, they had to use uh, first uh, grinding, of course, then flotation. Then at the end, they would cyanide and also roast the concentrate. Now, oh. nowadays, roasters are impossible to uh, to have permitted. Yep. because of the environmental uh, concerns. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we did is uh, we tried three different processes, and one that is tried and true, which is used uh, for the last 30 years by Barrick and also by Gold Corp uh, in uh, Red Lake, Ontario, for the last 20 years, is called pressure oxidation. Mm-hmm. Basically, what we do is that we take the, the, the ore, we float it, produce a concentrate, and then that concentrate is put into a vessel. It's called pressure oxidation. And basically, we eat it up and we add oxygen, and that destroys uh, the, the structure, mm-hmm. the pyrite uh, that's in the concentrate, and that mm-hmm. liberates gold. Mm-hmm. After that, you cyanide it. And the overall results of that is 93% recovery compared to 83% that they did historically. Mm-hmm. Big difference now, in the economics. Also, two other processes. One is called Biox, which gave us about the same results, which is used in South Africa mainly. And a third one, which is called Albion, which is more new, more cutting edge, and it's a variation of the, the first one, the pressure oxidation but without pressure and uh, with uh, at room temperature. And mm-hmm. that gave us also very good results. Mm-hmm. So we're pushing the test to, to see which one uh, would be the best, but at this time we would probably go with the tried and true and the proven uh, uh, process, which is pressure oxidation just like Barrick and Goldcorp. Sure. Well, of course, uh, you're talking about a fairly good-sized mining operation here with uh, 3.4 million ounces, uh, two, over 2 million ounces open pitable to start with. So you, you, you're probably talking about a fairly good uh, capital cost. I know it's too early. Uh, I guess you're going to come out, though, with a preliminary economic assessment. I think it's due by the year end. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And uh, that's when I think we will have exactly what kind of uh, what size of operation we'll have. But ballpark figure, we're looking at something, you know, in the range of 10,000 tons per day of ore. And at the same time, we're looking at CapEx. You know, similar projects around the world are in the the, the, the 300 to 500 million dollar range, mm-hmm. uh, all, uh, all CapEx in, you know. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the size of the, but the PEA will enable us to uh, to put uh, the exact number on that and uh, to uh, to give us also alternative. You know, uh, would it be uh, better to uh, to start uh, with a starter pit with the higher grade, or should we go, uh, you know, at full uh, 10,000? We'll know after the PEA. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, speaking of grades, what sort of grades are you getting? Um, what, what sort of average grade does that, uh, say, the open pit resource have? The open pit right now has an average grade of around 1.7 gram, mm-hmm. which is a bit better than most of the, the open pit situation around. You yes, know, it is. Look at other companies. Mm-hmm. And you've got to, uh, to have that, I think, uh, nowadays with the, the gold fluctuation, uh, the, the price fluctuation. It gives you a bit of the, of the cushion there. Yeah, no doubt, uh, better, higher grade than lower. Um, well, you, you know, your share price was a lot higher uh, before you did a lot of this work that really takes a good bit of the risk, at least removes some of the unknowns and, and thereby, and thereby, I would argue, removes some of the risk from the project. How do you explain the share price uh, in addition to, of course, the market's been weak in general, but, I mean, from $8 to $1 is quite a, quite a, quite a drop. How do you explain that uh, to the market and to people that ask? I think that, first of all, one of the, 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 the real problem uh, with the stock price was that we went under a cease trading order for uh, close to eight months last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came aboard the, the company, that was one of the first thing I did is that uh, uh, getting it uh, trading again and uh, starting, uh, you know, the company, uh, it was idle basically at that time. And uh, I think that uh, people got uh, disinterested in the stock. Uh, but the, the, the other factor was at that time when it was at $8, uh, the company had a partner, Cisco, that was looking into uh, the deposit. And Cisco decided not to pursue uh, with the deposit. And, uh, and instead, uh, they went and bought uh, Ammon, uh, Ammon Reef in, on a, on. Ontario, sorry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that both factor at that time, you know, people uh, started to uh, to get disinterested. Then after that, that eight months period of uh, cease trading uh, really uh, put a, a shadow on the company. And uh, since then, since uh, last November, you know, we've uh, been trying to rebuild the uh, uh, awareness of the company. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, you're right. We're uh, de-risking the project. We're uh, making good headways. Uh, we're uh, growing the project in, uh, in every uh, sense of the, 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 the word. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's a question of time. But, of course, we're fighting a, a very uh, bad market for yeah. junior companies right now. And I think that uh, that's that's also part of the the, the answer there. Yeah, no no question about that. That's for sure. Well, we just have a few seconds left, uh, maybe 30 seconds or so. Can you give us an idea, uh, you know, the, the share, what the market is paying for your shares in the ground is quite low. I mean, I didn't exactly do the math here, but it is. Uh, it, it's quite low. How does it how does it relate to other, to say, peer companies, other companies that are at your stage of development? Well, right now, when you look at the capitalization of the company, uh, the market is paying around 10 to 12 dollar an ounce in situ in in the ground. 
Mm-hmm. When you look at uh, comparable, you know, let's generally in our field right now, similar companies, you know, uh, Rainy River, Detour, and those guys are mm-hmm. all trading around sixty dollar an ounce. Wow, which okay. is uh, five six times. times over what uh, they're paying uh, right now for. Uh, for us, uh, yeah. we're not at the sta- same stage. We're maybe two, three years back of them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, you can see the leverage that right. uh, put the, that exists in uh, Clifton Star. Right. Well, I certainly believe it, which is why uh, you know I own the stock. I, I find it to be a very attractive stock at these levels. I I must say that, and we will tell. Uh, for the f- sake of full disclosure that you are a sponsor of this show, I have recommended your company to our subscribers, and I own it personally in my own retirement account. Michelle, we are out of time. What is your website so people can follow your uh, your story? It's simply www.cliftonstar.com. Uh, Cliftonstar.com. Thank yeah, you very much, we'll Michelle. Hope to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Uh, that's all the time we have now. But don't go away, folks, because coming up next, we've got Alana Mercer. who talk, She'll talk to us about uh, her exceptionally insightful book, At least uh, I've had a read of it, and it is really a very, very easy but very insightful read. It's called Into the Cannibal's Pot. Uh, Very, very interesting story. Don't go away. You're not going to want to miss what Elana has to say. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arrowway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arrowway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arrowway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen-Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. 
Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded, located in stable eastern Canada. The Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I'm really pleased to have with me Alana Mercer. She's a delightful lady that I met at a New York Junto show. Uh, they're a monthly show, that uh, a monthly program, I should say, that is objectivist orientated, uh, orientation of, of objectivism. Uh, and I only started attending these uh, meetings maybe three, three months ago. They're monthly. And I would suggest to people that they might just Google it, uh, look up New York Junto, and those of you who live in the New York City area might want to consider attending some of these meetings because you will uh, you will meet up with some excellent people, some excellent uh, thoughtful people, people that have really uh, really do care about liberty and personal freedom and the kinds of things that our uh, country was built upon in the past. And so it is uh, that we have Ilana Mercer. Uh, she uh, has written a wonderful book. Uh, she is. She describes herself as a classical liberal writer based in the United States. Uh, she pens WND's longest-standing exclusive paleo-libertarian column uh, called Return to Reason. Alana also uh, features on RT, that's Russian television, with the paleo-libertarian column. Uh, Alana is a fellow at the Jerusalem Institute uh, for Market Studies and the author of Into the Cannibal's Pot, Lessons for America from Post-Apartheid South Africa, and that's the book we want to talk to her about today. Uh, it's, uh, she explains the book uh, that it means that is meant as a metaphor, and is inspired by Ayn Rand's wise counsel against uh, prostrating uh, civilization to savagery. Alana's website is uh, www.alanamercer.com. Uh, Alana I L A N A Mercer dot com, and she blogs at uh www barely um barely a blog dot com barely a blog dot com welcome alana to turning hard times into good times hi jay it's wonderful to talk to you really good to have you with me you're uh you're talking to me from uh, i think the west coast or the left coast is it sometimes yes the backwater yeah coming back from manhattan was a tough one <laughs> Yeah, you, you 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 mentioned to me that you enjoy the uh, you enjoy Manhattan a lot, and uh, you know I guess the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. I, California looks nice to me as one that lives here with all this cement and uh, 
and, and cement blocks and, and uh, lack of trees and so forth here in New York. But in any event, we want to talk to you about your excellent book, uh, uh, inside the um, uh, your, your excellent book uh, that talks about the post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, really an interesting read, and uh, in listening to your talk at the New York Junto meeting in May, one of the major points that I got from your talk, as well as the book, which I have uh, partly read now, I still have a little ways to go, is that there is a connection between the removal of property rights of the South Africans and a loss of personal safety in the streets and the homes of ordinary South African people, both black and white. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Of course. Uh, I mean, uh, you and I are hardcore proprietarians. We've discussed this. And um, mm-hmm. while the book, Into the Cannibal's Pot, which your listeners can find on Amazon, um, abhors uh, state institutionalized segregation, um, it absolutely supports discrimination uh, as the prerogative of private property, and that's the essence of freedom. Um, what do I mean by hardcore proprietarian? Uh, property above all, property uberalis, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, the holy trinity of, of liberties to libertarians, life, liberty, property, um, usually takes for granted that these freedoms are equally weighted, but in mm-hmm. my book... Um, you know, metaphorically and in this book, uh, property trumps liberty. Why? Because um, liberty, I think you'd agree, can be variously defined. Um, our governments, and certainly the, um, the, the duopoly that reigns in the U.S. and in South Africa, assures its people that because um, they can vote for their ranks, because they can vote for the politicians, they are free. And the argument from democracies is patently false. Mm-hmm. Um, if our rights to property uh, were fully upheld, and I don't care about voting, uh, the same state that tells us to consider ourselves lucky and free uh, would be unable to uh, access and control huge um, areas of our lives, uh, whom we hire, fire, rent, sell to, trade, associate with, and uh, chief of which we would be able to defend our life. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, the Declaration of Independence uh, talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But I think initially it was property, perhaps, and that oh, yes. was changed and, and later. As much as we revere him, I think we have a legitimate grudge against uh, the magnificent Thomas Jefferson because he affirmed the natural rights of uh, all men to be secure in the enjoyment of their life, liberty, and possessions in many of his writings, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But in the mm -hmm. Declaration, somehow he opted for the inclusiveness of the pursuit of happiness, but the progressives have run with it and uh, decided that that actually, um, instead of cleaving to the precision of property, he uh, left us with a very vague concept. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, uh, you know, when you stop to think about it, it, it makes so much sense that there is a connection between... Uh, between your ability to own and hold on to what is yours, your own property that you have mm-hmm. earned through your own sweat, blood, and tears, and your own personal freedom. And if you, if you think about it, it, it's, it makes so much sense. And yet we've been trained to believe in the Western world that uh, somehow what is mine is the government's and, and needs, if I have more than other people, I mm-hmm. should be sharing it with everybody else. But Where did you know this concept what? Um, come it from? It all begins with our ownership over our bodies. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it, it amazes me that the progressives who keep talking about the right to abort, the right to choose, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting debate for us libertarians and mm-hmm. fall on either, either side. Um, but if they would just comprehend what that means, complete dominion over your, of your body and the extension of it is the, the products, uh, the avails of your, of your labor. Mm-hmm. And it's, we're not talking about pure acquisitiveness as if there's anything wrong with uh, acquiring things, but it is an extension of our uh, dominion over our, our uh, physical uh, body. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly if you just think about the, the practical applications of, of socialism and a move away from, uh, I mean, taxation is a form of confiscation for sure. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is government's way of, uh, of taking our private our property away from us and then distributing it as ever they see fit. And if you take it far enough, then certainly you're in a position where the roof over your head is gone, isn't it? Isn't that the case? And then you're no longer safe. Well, taxation is slavery and theft. And if you look at the debate that, that really is going on, it is the most repulsive debate, and that is what is fair taxation? In other words, it, the debate exists on a continuum that taking from the individual private property um, mm-hmm. and ensurfing him or enslaving him to work for the government is indeed an acceptable... Um, it's a social contract I never sign put, sign, put it this way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, assumes, uh, it assumes that there is such a thing as, as fair taxation. Mm-hmm. Well, we had, of course, the, the notion of no taxation without representation. That was the Tea Party, the first Tea Party. Uh, and it, it's dawned on me that there is a legitimate reason for a second Tea Party, for sure, because we are, again, at that point in place when we in America have very little taxation. I mean, we have lots of taxation with very little, if any, representation. Would you agree with that? Well, that's a tenant of my book, that uh, democracy in, is indeed a, a farce. Uh, uh, it, it is better called mobocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, uh, being a classical liberal, I do uh, greatly, greatly rely on, on wisdom such as Burke's or, or even Kirk's, who, um, you know, warned against the, the, um, the, law, the, the lawless, illiberal, irreligious French uh, revolution. And we are now Jacobins, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing uh, to me is um, how ignorant Americans, or actually all uh, people in the West are, of, and how they've dismissed the history of uh, the settlers in South Africa, which really begins around uh, 1652, um, mm-hmm. much like our um, early Americans uh, came to America and established what we regard as the freest and greatest nation ever. So mm-hmm. the parallels are huge, but yet we've written off... Um, the legacy of, of the Africana and the Anglos who founded um, the civilization at the tip of Africa. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the history of, of South Africa and how the apartheid system came to be. Actually, you're talking about a time frame that's not all that different from the first settlers that came to the United States, um, and, and maybe for some of the same reasons. Is that right? Exactly. Um, the, the white history begins uh, circa 1652 in South Africa mm-hmm. um, with first uh, the Dutch settlement in, in the coastal region known as Cape Town, mm-hmm. um, where, I, where I am from. I, I was born in the Transvaal, but I, I lived in Cape Town and emigrated to North America from Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Puritans have uh, over 350 years of history on the continent. They are not colonists in, in any way. They are... Uh, 
uh, as legitimate as uh, early Americans were in North America. They were mm-hmm. Dutchmen mainly, but um, and um, a mixture of French Huguenots, um, Germans, Scots, and so on, but mainly um, North Europeans, uh, Dutch, uh, Dutch people. Mm-hmm. And this um, white tribe of Africa, as many have called it, developed a really robust spirit of independence, patriotism, and frontier uh, mentality that was every bit as strong as that of uh, their American cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe even stronger because the Africana only relinquished their way of life and um, their understanding of their role in Africa as late as, uh, what, 90, 1994 when they were uh, forced to um, give over um, South Africa to the uh, Mandela's uh, communist ANC. Mm-hmm. So, very mm-hmm. similar to early Americans, Afrikaners fought Imperial Britain um, in, in two Boer Wars, and um, they continued for good reason to hate the British long after we Americans uh, forgave them mm-hmm. for their transgressions against our uh, liberties. Some of the issues there, or at least the, the, the um, formative events that I delineate in the book are the Great Treks, and the, those happen in the 1830s in which... Um, the Boers, looking to leave the British-controlled uh, coastal areas, um, ventured into the interior, and they traversed uh, treacherous t- territory. They fought savage tribes in the course of moving inland, and they settled the provinces of Natal, Transvaal, where I was born, and the Orange Free State. Um, another defining moment, um, or at least moment in history, for the Afrikaners, the Battle of Blood River in when was it? 1838, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, this legacy is very much um, revered in Africana history, which is being destroyed and dismantled, much as our history is being destroyed and dismantled oh. by various identity groups and progressives. Mm-hmm. No um, doubt. We, yes, we don't, we don't learn. The history that's being taught in the textbooks uh, these days is quite different even than when I was a young man, and I'm, I'm 65 years of age, so when I was in junior high school, I was taught things that they're no, no longer taught in the, in the United States. That is for sure. I wanted to ask you, Alana, then, was there a religious component to this, this desire to leave uh, and to settle? Uh, you mentioned the, the Huguenots. Exactly. Uh, yes. and, and much as there was with the pilgrims that came to the United States. No different, absolutely no different, except that I would say that um, the Afrikaners remained individualist and um, abhorring of the state well into the 19th century, and, and uh, um, they were always far less statist in the sense they were they were affi- affiliated to the nation, mm-hmm. the folk, um, mm-hmm. but they rebelled against any authority long after we Americans already accepted the authority of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very racy, quick-paced uh, section in into the cannibals' pot. Um, that tells of the history of the people and the land, and I think it will um, rivet Americans, especially males, I always like to say, because after all, uh, we are starved, especially boys are starved of epic, historic, uh, heroic settler stories. Mm-hmm. What, um, so what caused uh, the Dutch then to, uh, and you mentioned the word Boers, the Boers were the Boers, who? Yeah. The Boers, yeah. They were they were the the Dutch. Yes, the Boers. Um, today we speak of Boers in terms of the uh, mini genocide that is underway. Um, we, we speak of them as farmers, but mm-hmm. Boers was a term to to um, refer to these Dutch settlers. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, and interestingly, the, the Afrikaners fought um, Africa's first anti-colonial struggles with the British. Mm-hmm. And so, in all ways, they are native to the land and they are not colonists. Um, but it is very ironic and true, as I point out in the book, that they established this um, very retrogressive colonial system um, known as apartheid. And I do, uh, as you know, in the book, I condemn institutionalized segregation. Um, I find it abhorrent, and I do go into the structures of apartheid that were so uh, destructive. But I discriminate um, as a libertarian um, between institutionalized state um, segregation and the prerogatives of private property. I believe that private property has the absolute right to discriminate and uh, prejudge. Mm-hmm. So, did, so was the system of apartheid then set up to protect uh, the, the, uh, the white people and uh, the Boers? The Boers? Well, Is that, it, it came about as a means of, of defense. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's nothing in Africana rule that ever came, came um, even close to, to the destruction that American military wrought. And this is the irony to me, and I think I bring it out in the book. Uh, the American military is responsible for resettling and killing off millions of foreigners, not least in South Vietnam, sure. the Philippines, and most recently Iraq. Yeah, sure. I hope I don't anger your listeners by saying this, but um, really there's very little justice or perspective for Afrikaners in the history. Um, the same goes for the British. They destroyed the Zulu kingdom. Afrikaners mm-hmm. mainly engaged in local skirmishes with the Zulus mm-hmm. and the Corsas, mm-hmm. uh, Blood River being one such example. But more importantly, um, looking at apartheid and, and in answer to your question, um, the policy was, of course, euphemized in uh, South Africa's separate development. But it is true that it was not a theory of racial supremacy. You know, we have this um, Western media is absolutely uh, has, a, has an apoplectic fit each time you say apartheid and they equate it with Nazism. But this is not the case. Um, mm-hmm. Apartheid was thought up in the University of Stellenbosch, which is just inland from where I lived. Um, it's wine country near Cape Town. And the planners, so to speak, um, typical wasps, you know, they, they, if, if you look at any other tribe in Africa, you simply seize power, but wasps have to rationalize power in terms of, um, in terms that can make sense to them um, that are so-called congruent with their religious perspective. Mm-hmm. So the apartheid planners um, reasoned that to give the Bantu tribes full democratic rights, um, as was their political aspiration, would be absolutely impossible in, a, in one state, in a single unified state. Mm-hmm. And they reasoned that this would endanger the survival of um, the civilization that they had founded there, mm-hmm. and that would certainly unseat the European population in a position of uh, political dominance. And they were honest about that. It's as Mm -hmm. simple as all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they believe that that political hegemony was essential. It was biblically rooted. uh, I explain this in the book. Mm -hmm. Whether you believe that it's a a Bible um, that was interpreted for political uh, ends or you you buy what they said, but Mm -hmm. I just... I think I... um, tell the story of, of how apartheid was founded in a way that, that is unknown uh, in the media that, that Anderson Cooper's um, and his ilk con- control, you know? Absolutely. 
So um, in, any, in any case, uh, they felt that the essence of survival of the civilization at the tip of Africa was predicated on um, this minority hege hegemony. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I refer a lot to the great liberal historian, uh, historian of record for the Afrikaner people, and his name is Hermann Geliani, and he confirms that, having gone through the primary sources, he confirms that for leading thinkers in the National uh, Party, uh, secure, uh, securing um, the Afrikaners in a position of dominance and not uh, racial dominance was um, the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So um, this intelligentsia, if you want to call it that, and I, I know we have to beat on breast whenever we mention these people, <laughs> um, almost without exception they defended apartheid not in as, as an expression of white superiority or uh, white racial superiority, but on the grounds that it would um, reduce interracial conflict, reduce crime, and forestall communism. Mm -hmm. You know that all the countries, all the nations um, to the north of South Africa circled the drain, literally, and were lost to communism. Whereas South Africa, as you know, in the 60s was very prosperous, and mm -hmm. I think one way of telling how prosperous it was was the fact that it, uh, immigration from the neighboring countries was, was, uh, was always a problem. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. um, border control was necessary sure. because there were floods of, of Africans into South Africa. For sure. The good jobs were in South Africa. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, um, okay, so then that was the apartheid system, uh, which you are no apologist for. In no, fact, and, your and father and was a, an activist. They were not racist yeah. in, the, in the apartheid uh, superstructure, but apartheid was devised, and it, you could look at the primary doc, documents, uh, it was rooted in existential, not racial uh, consideration. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I thought about, because of your very probing and interesting questions, Jay, I thought of an interesting analogy. Think of the one-state solution for Israel. Have you mm -hmm. heard of that? Mm -hmm. That's a euphemism, um, you know, yeah, by, by sure. Israel's enemies for the, the country's destruction. Sure. In other words, do away with a two-party solution. Mm -hmm. um, and have, rather than an Israeli and Palestinian state side by side, have a, have a, have a one-state solution where the Jews become a minority and are eventually extinguished, as will liberty be extinguished in Israel, right? Mm -hmm. The liberty mm -hmm. that they have. Mm -hmm. A similar um, parallel works for South Africa, if you think of it. They devised a system of bantustans whereby... Um, Africans who, were, who are still tribally affiliated would be assigned in accordance with tribal affiliation, which is mm -hmm. the central organizing principle in Africa. Mm -hmm. So eventually these um, states that became black satrapies uh, were to function as a place where Africans could exercise political rights. Of course, they would always be adjacent to um, white South Africa, which was the more powerful and the more developed, mm -hmm. and they would rely, rely on it, much like uh, the Palestinian Authority relies on Israel, and will always rely on Israel to an extent. Mm -hmm. Sure. So yeah. Afrikaners basically wanted to have the equivalent of a two-state solution. In this case, that would be a many states, uh, many states run by um, by Africans living side by side, um, with separation and autonomy. Um, to white South Africa. Now, mm -hmm. this, is, this is the analogy I can think of. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's a good one. Yeah, it, it does seem to be a, a good parallel. Well, we're I just, you know, this is incredible. We're just about out of time. Uh, I've got only two or three minutes left here, and we've barely scratched the surface. That was fast. Can I come back? Well, absolutely. We're going to have you back for sure. I, I, but I, we got a couple of minutes yet. I want to make the best use of that. We, you've talked in your book about the breakdown of law and order that followed uh, the the dissolution uh, dismissal of apartheid, and I think uh, it's a very important that our listeners know something. If you could just talk very briefly about that with the two minutes we have left, and then we, I want to have you back to talk about the gold mining industry and, and industry and, and the economy in general in South Africa sometime in the near future. Uh, because I think that's very important. But if you could just, because the connection between the loss of property and uh, the breakdown in law and order, can you just talk to our listeners about what has taken place post-apartheid and how dangerous it's become to live in that country? Well, I can't get the gold bug out of my head because I'm a gold bug. If we had a, a support group for gold gold bugs, I would say, Anonymous, blah, 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 gold bug since uh, $700, <laughs> you know. Um, but, yes. Think about why there is a shortage of engineers in South Africa, because mm-hmm. white males, by law, are supposed to comprise only 10% of the payroll. Mm. Who works the mines? Who are the mm-hmm. engineers? This mm-hmm. is one thing why uh, the gold industry is, is uh, thanks to black economic empowerment, which is an extreme form of uh, affirmative action and um, a violation of private property. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the most extreme form of, of uh, other than Malaysia, of uh, affirmative action. But we have it here. So it exists on a continuum of the violation of property. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons the, uh, that, that uh, mining is deteriorating so is that because, because of a shortage of skills. There are definitely memos, and I quote them in the book, circulating among, um, for once, all mining companies must... Um, Petition the government for for permission to to um, to mine. So mm-hmm. they have to uh, they have to bid for contracts. And so if they don't adhere to this uh, ruthless um, um, you know BEE they call it black economic empowerment, mm-hmm. um, then they don't get to excavate. Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. one reason why uh, private property is so loath to invest in the mining industry because they literally have to part with a chunk of their property. They have to take on black partners if they well, are to, to mine. Well, I am, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, Alana. I, I am somewhat familiar with a, a company or two in Canada that has had some experiences, uh, very unpleasant ones in South Africa. We've got to have you back. Uh, next week we, we do have some other guests, but sometime in the near future, I'll talk to you after the show. We want to have you back on. I'll pin uh, you down for two weeks' time. Okay, we'll, we'll try to do that. We'll talk to you very soon uh, about that as soon as we... Uh, but we do have to go to break now, uh, Alana, so I'll talk to you very soon about having you back as soon as possible. Folks, don't go away. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Barron's columnist, Gene Epstein. He'll be with us right after the commercial break. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. 
Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future